Magic Hunter. All right, let's go ahead and get started. My name is Jamil Jaffer. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks to everybody for joining us this afternoon uh, for our exciting event today. Uh, it's NSI, the National Security Institute's first venture into crypto. Actually, our second venture, we did the all-day conference four years ago, but it feels like so much has changed in crypto. Um, so we're going to talk about some of that today. So today we're talking about crypto national security, how to validate American innovation and verify U.S. national security. We've got an amazing group of crypto and national security experts today to discuss the issues at the intersection of cryptocurrency and U.S. national security interests. We're joined, uh, and today's program is going to be run by Laura Shin. She's a crypto journalist, the host of the Unchained podcast, and author of The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze. She's got her book right there. You can pick it up at your local bookstore or on Amazon or whatever uh, retailer you like. Um, I want to note that in her book, her sources uncovered the people they believe that were behind the biggest whodunit in crypto, the 2016 DAO attack on Ethereum. She's formerly a senior editor at Forbes, where she was the first mainstream journalist to cover crypto full-time. Uh, her podcast videos have more than 15 million downloads. Uh, she's spoken about cryptocurrency at TEDx San Francisco, the IMF, Singularity University, and the Oslo Freedom Forum, just to name a few. Uh, she graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Stanford. With, and as an MA uh, from Columbia's amazing journalism program. She lives in New York City. Laura, thanks for being here with us. Um, yeah, Laura thanks so much is for having me. Awesome. Um, Laura is going to host a panel discussion uh, with probably three of the most influential uh, folks in crypto and, and at the intersection of crypto and national security. I'll go left to right. Uh, Jerry Brito. Jerry is the executive director of Coin Center. It's an independent nonprofit focused around the policy issues on cryptocurrency technologies like Bitcoin. Its mission is to defend the rights of individuals to build and use free, open, and private cryptocurrency networks. He's testified multiple times before Congress and state legislatures, has, regularly holds briefings for members of Congress and their staff. He's presented on cryptocurrency at the CFTC, the SEC, Treasury, State Department, uh, and the White House, as well as the Council on Foreign Relations and Brookings Institution, and now, amazingly, at NSI. Uh, he's the author, the co-author of Bitcoin, a Primer for Policymakers, um, he's also on the political list of 50's most influential DC influencers. His op-eds have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and elsewhere. Not to be outdone, we're joined by Sheila Warren, the Chief Executive Officer for the Crypto Council for Innovation. Uh, she is, leads one of the most influential organizations representing crypto industry leaders, including Coinbase, Fidelity Digital Assets, Block, Andreessen Horowitz, Ribbit Capital, and Paradigm. Prior to joining CCI, uh, Sheila served as the World Economic Forum's Deputy Global Head of the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution, the Head of Data, Blockchain, and Digital Assets, and a member of its Executive Committee. She founded the Blockchain and Digital Assets work at the Forum. She is a recovering lawyer like I am, having begun her career as a Wall Street attorney at Cravath, uh, the, the most elite uh, of New York law firms. Uh, she was also Senior Executive and General Counsel at TechSoup. She designed and launched NGO Source, a groundbreaking service focused on international grant making. She's also the co-host of a podcast, Money Reimagined, which is Coindesk's popular uh, crypto podcast. And she is a double Harvard graduate with, de with degrees from both Harvard College and Harvard Law School. Himself not to be outdone, Lanzarote, also a double Harvard graduate, which I found out, um, and the winner of the John P. Reardon Award as a top scholar athlete at Harvard in baseball, I did not know that, uh, is the global managing partner and chief strategy officer for K2 Integrity, a preeminent risk compliance investigations and monitoring firm. Uh, prior to joining K2, Juan serves as the Deputy Assistant to the President and Deputy National Security Advisor for Combating Terrorism, so -called, the so-called counterterrorism czar. That was Juan. Uh, but he was also the first ever Assistant Secretary uh, of Treasury for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes. 
In that role, he led the post-9-11 anti-money laundering and sanctioned regime expansion in the United States, helped develop international standards for AML and CFT and the like. And for more than five years, Juan sat on the board of the Vatican's Financial Information Authority, appointed twice by Pope Francis as the U.S. representative to oversee the Vatican's AML efforts. He served as a variety of advisors on, on many other things, including HSBC's Financial Vulnerability Committee. This is the board of Northwestern Mutual, Boston Dynamics, Cambridge Quantum Computing, and the Director's Advisory Board for the National Counterterrorism Center. He has more academic appointments than anyone I know, including at CSIS, the Foundation for Defense Democracies, was a visiting lecturer in law at Harvard, and most importantly, of course, is on the board, uh, board of advisors at the National Security Institute here at George Mason University Antonin Scalia Law School. So with that, Laura, over to you. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for coming to our panel. So as far as I understand, I think there's kind of like a range of, um, uh, there's a range in the knowledge base around crypto in the audience. So we're just going to start with kind of some simple basic questions just to make sure that people are kind of even uh, familiar with what we're talking about. So um, why don't we just have each of the panelists talk about what they think crypto innovation is about and what you think the benefits of crypto are and how this will impact uh, the world and society and um, which industries you think it will impact. And how about uh, Sheila, why don't you start first? Sure. Thanks, Laura. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll start with the benefits that I that I see and, and just kind of take, make this personal and talk about the reasons why I'm so committed and engaged with the crypto ecosystem. Uh, I think that uh, the way we think about Web3 and crypto is really predicated on what we think about current systems that exist. To the extent that we think those current systems serve people really well and that they are the best we can do, maybe we don't find this innovation very exciting. To the extent that we are intimately aware in some cases, personally aware, or even generally aware of the flaws of these systems, the ways in which we have subjected ourselves to you know, market capture, to the whims and foibles of leaders of centralized platforms and, and other institutions, uh, we may see a dramatic need for change and for doing better. And so uh, I think that it's important to kind of reflect on where we are as a society in our technology, but also in our systems and our institutions uh, and how we could, we could make improvement into the technology that underlies our foundation going forward. And to me, that's what crypto fundamentally is about. Um, I'll turn to others to talk about what it is to baseline that for us, but I wanted to kind of land that point because I, I would encourage everyone as we go through this conversation to do some of that reflection yourself and think about with the national security angle, like what are things about our systems that have, have not made it easy for us to affect some of the policy goals that maybe we all would like to see uh, be more de facto the realities as opposed to the current systems that exist today. And Jerry, what about you? What are your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, um, so I think I imagine folks who are tuning into this know what crypto is, so I don't have to explain what it is. Okay. Uh, what I'll say, though, is what's most exciting to me about it is the opportunities, right? Now, um, this technology, very much like the open internet, um, is these are networks that are unowned, they're public goods, and they're open platforms on top of which people can build. And... Um, you know, if you take, um, if you can compare Tim Berners-Lee invention of the World Wide Web in 1998, I want to say, or sorry, 94, I guess I don't know what it is, but to Satoshi uh, Nakamoto's invention of Bitcoin in 2008, we are like a dozen years out from that invention. And so if you ask me uh, in 2001, let's say, you know, 10 years into the web, what is the benefits, you know, uh, you know, there was no Wikipedia, 
there was no Twitter, there was no Facebook, there was no Netflix, there was no Skype, um, uh, you know, there was no Zoom. So, it, it, you know, it, you can imagine all the things that would be built on top of it, but you could see that it's an open platform, available to anybody, interoperable, and you didn't have to seek permission to build on top of it. So it's that permissionless nature of these open interoperable networks that is very much like the internet and what makes it um, exciting. Um, and then on top of that, um, I would add from a civil libertarian perspective, um, uh, it, it allows, you know, it, it routes around centralized control, the kind of centralized control that, for example, the Chinese Communist Party wants to impose on payments, the kind of control um, that, they, you know, that the Russian government wants to impose on information, right? And this allows for the kinds of innovations we've seen uh, on the internet to be built in a way that are censorship resistant. And so that's also very exciting today. Juan, what about you? Laura, thank you. I'll just build off of what Sheila and Jerry have said. And, and the way I think about it are, is about sort of the features of crypto and the, and the related technologies and then sort of the policy elements. So, so the three, three things that I think about are the decentralization and democratization of transactionality, which the technology allows for. So it feeds off of what Jerry just describes in, in terms of uh, the autonomy and agency it gives to individuals and institutions given the nature of the technology, given the nature of open platforms and uh, the, the innovations that are coming off of it. Um, that has you know, pretty radical potential sort of regulatory policy implications. Um, so, so I start first with that as a fundamental feature of, of crypto, the decentralization and democratization of transactionality. Uh, the second is the fact that this is an ecosystem that's driven by uh, the underlying mathematics and technology itself. Uh, Michael Saylor, the CEO of MicroStrategy, which has bet a lot of his reputation and the company's future on Bitcoin and owning Bitcoin, often talks about um, the crypto ecosystem being about digital energy. And there's something really interesting about that concept of the conversion of uh, this uh, federated network, the, um, the calculations, the, the infrastructure, the blockchain attached to it as a new element of energy and, uh, and uh, infrastructure, if you will. And so that to me is really interesting too, because it then opens up kind of the thinking as to what, what are we really grappling with in terms of, of this ecosystem. And then the third is where Jerry started, I think, where um, we are just seeing the beginnings of an ecosystem in formation. Certainly, we've crossed the Rubicon of legitimacy of, of crypto to a certain extent, but we're just seeing the beginnings of that ecosystem as we creep into DeFi, Web 3.0, et cetera. So the decentralization, the, the technology-driven kind of energy around the space, and then the innovation around an ecosystem that's in formation all are ways that I think about what crypto is about. Yeah, and actually, even though I'm the moderator, I just want to add one thing, which is um, people might have heard uh, typically with the first iteration of the internet um, that that was like a read-only internet. And then the second was they added read and write capability like social media. We're now kind of all creating our own internet. And now with crypto, that enables this kind of ownership aspect and um, that in a way, like 
kind of, I feel like makes the internet more real in a sense, um, rather than like this virtual world. It's like a place where you can actually have that digital item and carry it around with you to your different digital worlds. Um, so this, you know, obviously being a panel for the National Security Institute, um, I was curious for what you think um, it would mean if the U.S. had the crypto innovation here in, in this country for our own country's economic and national security. I'll start. Um, so this technology is going to develop somewhere in the world, no matter what. Um, and so then the question is, are we going to participate in that and are we going to leave? And I think, quite frankly, that this technology is so well suited for the United States above any other country in the world for, some, for the same reasons that the US led in the internet. Um, so if you think about it, um, you know, when the internet was um, uh, beginning to be commercialized in the mid 90s, the US had a choice, right? And, and the internet had a lot of risks. Commercializing the internet had a lot of risks associated with it. And the US had a choice. It could either try to close it down and control it, uh, or it could try to just allow it to be opened up and allow people to provide internet service, allow people to just build on top of it and um, deal with any externalities as they came up in a targeted way. And that's the path that the Clinton administration chose. And the history is the success that we've seen. At the same time, France was looking at the uh, possibilities of communication networks. And instead it chose to um, go down the road of a uh, state provided centralized network for information. It was called Minitel. And, uh, and at the time it seemed so advanced, right? You had um, a state um, monopoly that provided um, uh, French citizens these terminals, these Minitel terminals, that where you could access newspapers and get sports scores and stock. It was really, it was advanced, right? But of course, it went nowhere because when you have an open platform like the internet and American entrepreneurship building on top of it, you know, the, it's ex exponentially great. Whereas, you know, you, when you have a centralized state control system, like, and so I think we're at the same point today. Do we want to pursue a let a thousand flowers bloom and deal with externalities as they come up, right? And that's one of the questions that Biden executive order on digital assets is going to be addressing. Or do we want to pursue a strategy like the one China is doing where they banned all crypto and instead they are pursuing national state digital currency and national state blockchain network. Uh, you know, I think those are doomed. Um, the question is, are we gonna you know, do the internet playbook again? And I hope you will. I'll just I'll just piggyback off Jerry's comments just to say, you know, I, I, we can't land the point strongly enough. Like there is no world in which crypto and its ecosystem vanishes. That is not a thing. Like this is this is it's already flourishing and thriving. And the question is going to be, what is the value system underlying that? What are the predicate assumptions that we are making when we engage in this ecosystem? This is a once in a generation opportunity to set up a foundational infrastructure that is going to ensure that we are preserving individual rights and civil liberties, and that we're almost reshaping in a way, I would say, and I don't mean to be dramatic about this, but reshaping the way that we are able to interact with each other in a virtual environment. And if you're paying any attention whatsoever, you know, I've got little kids, let me tell you, the virtual environment and engaging online and in digital activity is only increasing as we go from generation to generation. It's not going down, right? So it's important, I think it's imperative that we think very hard 
as a society, I would say as a global society, be at, what, do we, what do we want to bake into that? And how do we want to allow differentiation to thrive? So it becomes a question of what is your baseline? Where do you start? And then if you, some jurisdictions may choose on the back of an open internet, there have been movement made by folks to try to lock that down. But what you start with as your fundamental architecture is critically important. And what I think all of us here on this call are dedicated to preserving and protecting. Laura, I'm just gonna echo Jerry and Sheila, maybe emphasize a couple of things. I think um, this is an industry where we wanna be uh, the attractive center, right? For purposes of innovation, talent, um, further further tech evolution, right? We, we wanna be the center of gravity. We wanna attract best talent. Um, so that's one reason as a matter of economic interest as well as national security interest, that's a good. I think, you know, we also have an opportunity here, to Sheila's point, not only to shape the rules of the road and the values that undergird how this system evolves, but also to reinforce um, US capital markets, the role of the dollar, other things that have been thought of to be put at risk as a result of this actually can be reinforced if we have a, a say and a hand in how this plays out. Um, I've been arguing recently you know, with uh, US dollar-backed stable coins is actually an opportunity uh, to think about the environment where the dollar is actually reinforced as opposed to having the digital yuan or uh, a crypto ruble sort of take hold. Um, you know, I'm not sure who would want to hold a crypto ruble right now, by the way, but in any event. Um, but there's a way of thinking about the things that we think are vulnerabilities as a result of technologies actually being reinforced by the very technologies themselves. And to Sheila's point, then embedding in the values that we want. And the third thing, and this, this gets to my, um, forgive me for this, but you know, my old roles, I had to sharpen the knives, so to speak, in terms of our national security policy. These, these are technologies that we can use to challenge our adversaries um, and to, uh, to compete aggressively internationally. And to Jerry's point, um, this is a technology that actually plays to America's great strengths, um, where you have the ability to ensure that financial and commercial relationships are not beholden to a central autocratic authority, aren't beholden to currencies that are devalued at the, at the whim of a corrupt official uh, uh, in an environment that might be uh, highly corrupt or uh, you know, replete with money laundering. Uh, this is a technology that actually allows us to, uh, to attack, challenge, circumvent what is a, an autocratic offensive in terms of trying to redefine financial and commercial norms. And so I like, I like the technology because of what we can imagine we can do with it to challenge what is more and more state-centric control of financial and commercial relationships. Yeah, to your point earlier about how um, already the way the crypto markets, um, ha you know, have these stable coins that are pegged to the US dollar and they're very dominant in the trading pairs. I have noticed this in my reporting. If I'm talking to a source who's from the Philippines or from Germany or, you know, wherever it might be, and they'll, they're recounting to me some story of, you know, something that happened back when, and they'll be like, at that time, the price of, you know, Bitcoin or Ether or whatever was X. 
they will always, always, always quote it to me in US dollars. They do not know what it was in Philippine pesos or in the Euro. They don't know. They remember what it was in dollars. And these are non-Americans. So already, like I'm already seeing that, you know, the US dollar is kind of, um, you know, what that uh, kind of did not, it's the, it's the currency in which everybody's denominating all the prices in crypto. Um, and then now I'm just like speaking as an American, but I agree that the US is kind of like uniquely positioned, I think here, because I think of blockchains as little democracies in the sense that, you know, you have like every person on, or every node, you know, running the ledger and then the majority rules essentially. Um, so everybody kind of like participates and contributes, but then it's like similar to a democracy. So I find it, um, frankly, like, you know, uh, yeah, like I, I, and I just feel like uh, with our history of our strong capital markets and stuff, like I, I think like we're a natural place for this innovation to take place. Um, however, at the moment, despite all this, there is a lot of um, debate around how crypto should be regulated, particularly in the, particularly in the U.S. What's your take on that? I'm I'm happy to start if if Jerry and uh, Sheila would like me to. Um, yeah, go ahead. I I think you know. Maybe there's two ways of answering this. One is the way that the regulators have tried to think about it to date. And I think the challenge there is that the regulators, be they the SEC, FinCEN, uh, the banking regulators, uh, or the IRS for that matter, um, have tried to define crypto through the lens of not only their own authorities, but what they understand these things to be in the context of what they have usually regulated. So this is the shoehorning kind of approach to regulation. Now, in fairness to the regulators, I think there's been some good innovation. I think you can say that FinCEN was ahead of the curve, even internationally, on trying to think about how to regulate virtual asset service providers uh, in the crypto domain and to see them as a bit, a bit uh, analogous to commercial banks as a clearinghouse for the system, et cetera. So um, in fairness, I think there has been some creativity, but I think the challenge has been the regulators have wanted to regulate through the lens of what they're traditionally used to and the authorities that they're used to. Um, and in the US, of course, we've got a fractured regulatory system, not just at the federal level, but at the state level. So any, any uh, innovator out there or crypto uh, you know, company will tell you how painful it is to have to deal with 50 states and all the rest. Um, so that's, that's one answer, which is, um, you know, there's shoehorning going on. There needs to be more learning. Uh, more dialogue, et cetera. And that's what Jerry does. That's what Sheila does. But, you know, they do it better than anybody. The, the second part is, do we really understand where we want the technology to go? And can we regulate forward in a way that encourages innovation while also dealing with what are the fundamental challenges that the regulators have identified? Safety and soundness of the system, right? A, a key question one that I think was born out of the announcement of Libra and DM when regulators finally awoke to the reality that this, this thing can actually go to scale, right? This isn't just a science experiment. So safety and soundness, um, commercial you know, concentration, the, the Facebook issue uh, with, with DM, the anti-money laundering, countering terrorist financing sanctions issues, which have been fundamental. Jerry and I have worked on these issues for a long time, uh, along with Coinbase and others. Um, how, do you, how do you ensure that there's transparency, traceability, accountability in the system, the way that you do in the formal financial system. And then how do you protect consumers against fraud, uh, you know, cyber attacks and all the rest? And so 
those I think are all legitimate issues and questions. Um, but I think the framing of not how do you bring the technology back into old regulatory structures, but instead, how do you think about regulatory structures that deal with those issues, but enlist the technology and works with the, the sectors that will have solutions to what that looks like. This is why uh, you know, Coinbase, Circle, and others trying to deal with the travel rule in the anti-money laundering context. How do you deal with the necessity to understand the originator and the ultimate beneficiary of a transaction? You know, how, what, what does that look like in the crypto domain? That's, that's solvable. It, it may, may be an imperfect solution given traditional ways of doing it, but there are ways of solving for that issue. Um, and so that's the way I would think about it, Laura, that you know, there's been kind of a traditional shoehorning way of dealing with it, but there has to be a way of innovating forward to, uh, to allow for the innovation to occur here, here in the US. So can I, um, so I actually have a slightly different take than Juan, and, and I agree with, with, with what he's saying, um, but I actually think that if, if, if law is well-written, um, it's not gonna be technology specific. Right, it's going to be um, broad principles based, and we're not going to be regulating things. So I, I don't think you know, how, people often ask me, "How is crypto regulated?" Well, crypto isn't regulated because crypto, at the end of the day, is just code, it's speech, it's not regulated. We don't regulate things in the U.S. We regulate activities, right? So if you um, take custody of people's money, that's an activity that presents risks to consumers and investors, and so that's going to be regulated. If you do transactions for people, well, you know, you might be that's an activity that will be regulated for anti-money laundering. Um, so, that, so that's, to me, number one is we don't regulate things, we regulate activities. And with crypto, you basically are doing, I mean, uh, with some exception, exemption, exceptions, you're basically doing a lot of the same activities that, that we've done traditionally, just in a, in a different, perhaps more efficient, perhaps you know, better way on different margins. And so if the law is well-written so that you are really just regulating activities in the abstract, you should be able to apply the same law to crypto um, uh, without a problem, right? You might have to issue guidance on the margins about how it fits. Um, and so FinCEN, for example, I think is a good example of this, right? So uh, to date, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll stress because who knows what will happen tomorrow, but to date, FinCEN has done a terrific job of taking the Bank Secrecy Act and the implementing regs and applying them to crypto um, in a way that it fits perfectly. I think you're absolutely right, Juan, that the travel rule was one piece that was just been hard to fit, but ultimately, look, the industry has been able to, to figure out um, how to do it. So in general, I think, you know, um, you can um, apply existing law to crypto um, with a little bit of work, but that's fine. That's what regular is supposed to do. Um, I think when you find that it doesn't fit, I think often is because the law is not a gener of general applicability, right? And, and the answer there, I would say, is not to resort to writing a crypto-specific law, because then you're just going to do the same thing again. You're going to write these laws <laughs> specific laws. You should try to figure out what is the principle you're trying to, um, uh, to apply and do it that way. Um, and so there, for example, you know, with the SEC, I think the SEC... Um, you know, in the last administration did a good job of applying the Howey test to digital assets, but there's still outstanding questions that we could use court cases for sure to help us determine how to apply Howey to crypto. And we could use some congressional action so they can have their voices heard. 
And then lastly, I think there are agencies like the IRS, for example, that um, have just been laggards, right? Whereas, you know, the other departments of treasury, whereas the SEC, the CFTC have been working to, to um, uh, update stuff uh, and make sure that, you know, that, that their um, regulations are uh, understood. IRS hasn't done that. So, you know, to me, it's, it's all solvable. It's not, it's not that hard. It just needs, people just need to work on it. So I'll um, just add uh, to what my colleagues have said, the vast majority of which I agree with, but I'll say a, a couple of points. One is we cannot predict what is going to happen in this ecosystem, what kind of applications are going to be built. The same way I think it was Jerry that was talking about, you know, at the beginning of the internet, we had no idea that we were going to have Zoom calls and, you know, you, 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 there's no way. So we cannot possibly be totally forward thinking in any regulation that we are going to bring out or any policy we create because human ingenuity is what it is. There's going to be some really exciting thing that none of us have heard of that comes up one, two, five, ten, who knows years from now. So that's just a point to land. So the idea that we could regulate the trajectory of technology in some effective way is just fallacious. We just can't, we can't do that. So to Jerry's point, you know, what we can do is say, what is the activity that we're trying to incentivize and disincentivize? What is our actual assessment of the real risk not the hypey, shilly risk, but the actual risk in the systems as they exist today and as we can foresee. And what do we think is the better way to go about addressing that risk? Is it allowing innovation to occur? Is it engendering healthy competition within the industry to say, to some extent, the market is going to assess and decide which of these activities is riskier or less risky or more secure or whatever the axis of engagement is, which is how we traditionally in the United States to some extent handle this kind of thing. So is that what we're going to do? Uh, and also is our goal to achieve total parity? So one thing I found very interesting about this whole, you know, sanctions evasion conversation, right, is this idea that like, well, you know, we got to close any gap that might exist in any particular avenue there might be for potential theoretical sanctions evasion by any actor in any part of the world that might be doing something that could potentially be perceived as illicit. And I'm like, what? You know, so in the face of pretty strong evidence that that is not really happening, not to mention the fact that, and I'll go off a little bit of a rant, but like, this particular innovation has new ways of engaging in achieving policy goals around national security, right? But not if you're looking for total parity with everything that's come before or currently exists. So I think you have to acknowledge the benefits in addition to the absolute focus that there, you know, some policymakers are taking on perceived or potential risk or even actual risk in some cases and say, how could we also leverage this technology and encourage the innovation to support our policy goals, whatever they might be, national security being a key one. Well, let's Lauren, talk a little bit. Oh, uh -huh. go ahead. Lauren, I just wanted to piggyback very quickly on Sheila's point, because it's a really good one about uh, risk management, because I think, I think all of us who work in the space recognize this, but but it's not often understood that, you know, we talk about the sort of the nascent stage of the technology and the ecosystem, but we are at a very nascent stage of capacity, especially by government authorities and regulators to understand what risk management actually looks like in the space. And we've had this problem in spades in the traditional financial system for a long time. What, what is risk, what is a risk-based approach to money laundering uh, with the major global banks? I mean, that's, that, that's a topic of webinars even you know, in 2022, right? So um, we are just at the early stages of understanding risk and managing risk and having tools and authorities that go along with managing that risk that then allow us to do what Sheila said, which is 
not to be absolutist about anything, but to say, you know, not all crypto is the same, not all VASPs are the same, not all jurisdictions are regulating the same, not all platforms are the same, right? Um, and we, I think part of the, the regulatory challenge is there has to be a maturation of risk management and the understanding of what risk means. And again, the, the three of us on the panel and you too, Laura, have seen this journey there's been kind of an absolutist approach to this, like no risk, no, uh, we, you know, the, if any bad guy can use it, we don't want to see it, you know, this kind of a thing. That, that's just not, that's not the way the world works. It's not the way the regulation of the financial system works. It's not the way we deal with commercial risk, right? It's not how insurance deals with risk. So uh, th there's just a lack of maturity with respect to risk management in the space that goes along with some of the challenges we're, just, we're describing here. Well, let's actually unpack this a little bit more because I think this is probably a particular focus of the attendees, I would imagine. Um, but, you know, as you guys have been saying, there um, is this perception that there are national security concerns with crypto around things like illicit finance, such as money laundering, terrorism financing, sanctions evasion, ransomware. Um, you know, one thing that I've noticed even when I get interviewed is there's this kind of conception that crypto is like only for criminals. And I, you know, have to tell them, well, actually the latest um, figures are that last year, um, listed activity in crypto was only 0.015% of all crypto transactions. And in the traditional financial space, the estimates are more like two to 5%. So it's an order of magnitude different. Um, so, I mean, granted, of course, this could change. And over time, probably as crypto becomes more widely adopted, it will look more like the traditional financial system in that. Uh, way, but at least for now, it, it's quite different. Um, but I did wonder, you know, what you thought still, obviously, because this is a different system and there is more pseudonymity in it. So what do you think are the best ways for the industry to address these concerns that I uh, listed before? So <clears throat> one thing I'll just, I'll just say, and I, I, I actually want to know more what Juan and Sheila have to say about this, but when I get asked about this, you know, what I often point out is if you look at when these concerns are raised, you know, concerns were raised, right? Who, who's doing the, the raising of, of the concerns? Um, it's often um, going to be at a very high political level, right? Um, and when I tell people who ask me about you know, these concerns, I say, I say go talk to um, the FBI, go talk to DOJ, go talk to Secret Service, go talk to DHS, go talk to Vincent and ask them what they think about this crypto stuff. Is it a big national security threat? Do they feel like they have it under control? Do they feel like they don't and they need help? They need new rules. And because I know what all what law enforcement officers and the people on the front line um, uh, uh, in implementing our anti-money laundering counter financing uh, 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 terrorism, um, what they think and what they think is number one, in many cases, many law enforcement officers I've talked to, they love working on cryptocurrency cases because all the evidence is there for them transparently on the blockchain and forever uh, uh, recorded. Um, I had a law enforcement agent tell me recently that he likes it because he doesn't have to go be a witness at trial. The blockchain is the witness, right? And it's there. Um, he doesn't, you know, you don't have to go file an MLAT to try to get um, evidence from some correspondent bank in some Eastern European country. It's on a blockchain. So, um, so to number one, I, you know, I, 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 I would say go ask the folks on the front lines, and I think what you will find is, is that they will um, rate this threat um, as, as not very high. 
Um, and there was one more other point I was going to make, but it slipped my mind, so I'll stop. Well, while you're thinking of that, I will say <laughs> that I would agree because uh, when I was writing my book, uh, my sources and I actually tracked down who was behind um, what, to my mind, is the biggest who done it in crypto. Um, this was a, a hack from 2016. And yes, I looked at so many blockchain transactions and uh, some sources who are um, blockchain forensics people helped me uh, with certain key pieces of it that were definitely, um, you know, tricky, And but they have the technology to do it. And, you know, my takeaway from working on this investigation is, oh, don't do anything illicit on, uh, on any blockchain because basically blockchain forensics will catch up to you. And, um, you know, around the time that I released that news, another hack um, that, well, so we don't know actually who hacked it, but the government um, arrested some individuals that were um, caught laundering or, or that they believe laundered the proceeds from that hack. So, you know, like, you know, I spent a lot of time tracking these transactions and you can, you can figure things out. Like, you know, I was kind of figuring out, oh, this person maybe is based in Asia based on when they were transacting. It was always like Asian to um, Asian morning to night, uh, a schedule and things like that. And so, you know, it, from my personal experience, I also really like the blockchain firstly thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, Sheila and, and Juan, what are your ideas? Yeah, you know, so CCI is an evidence-based advocacy organization, right? And so let's look at the very narrow example of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Let's talk about what's happening right there. So media talking points all over the place. I love the passive voice uh, that Jerry cited, right? Like concerns being raised, right? Like by folks who are like, well, it we might have this like one Russian oligarch who might launder <laughs> some, you know, portion of whatever, like whatever. Parallel, what does the evidence show? The evidence is showing us over $100 million raised for the Ukrainian government, for humanitarian assistance, the crowdfunding of a wartime defense, which I mean, I just need to pause on that because it is so mind blowing to me that we're watching this happen in real time. I mean, unbelievable, right? The Ukrainian government, the president minister saying that this is an economic breakthrough for their country. And the reason, I think we can say a critical reason that Ukraine is still standing, right? That has not been overrun by Russian forces here. So that is evidence, that is fact, that is substantiated. You know, um, uh, you can look at the record of it, both on the Block Explorer, but also just what people in these positions are telling us and what we know. Counter the really no evidence of you know, sanctions evasion happening by Russian oligarchs or really anyone for that matter. And so I wanna you know, spotlight what, what Juan was saying or, or piggyback on that a bit and just how are we assessing risk in the situation? So some of the, um, some of the proposals and things that you know, we're hearing that we're, we're really trying to push back against pretty hard are not evidence-based. They are fear-mongering or you know, perceived threat-based, or they're based on a misunderstanding of not only the potential of this technology, but how it actually operates right now, today. Not theoretically, but literally right now. And to your point, Laura, you know, this is a trackable, traceable record that is really not in anyone's interest to do illicit activity with because it might take some time to catch you. But you know, the reality is the forensics are getting more and more sophisticated. And it's not a place I certainly wouldn't recommend that people trying to hide anything do it in full visibility of you know the entire world. It doesn't seem like the right strategy to me. Let's put it that way. Laura, I, I would answer it this way because I've come to to learn and, and sort of uh, be a part of the, the crypto community through the national security lens. I think we have to recognize that, look, this is a, an entirely new domain of interaction technology um, and, and commerce. And with that comes risk, right? With that comes challenges of 
you know, misuse criminality as we have in any other system that we have uh, currently. Um, and so we have to recognize, look, there are elements of the crypto economy that um, maybe accelerate or amplify ransomware. Okay, how do you deal with it? Um, there are states like North Korea that are trying to leverage crypto to gain access to capital they wouldn't otherwise. We, we've got to recognize it. Well, let's figure out then what we do with it. Um, there are organized crime groups, some terrorist groups that are flirting with more and more use of crypto. Okay, what are they using? Monero, maybe some, some particular platforms. Um, but I, I, think, I think it behooves us to recognize, look, we've got challenges in this domain like we do in the formal financial system. Um, let's figure out where those risks lie uh, and then address them. And frankly, then take advantage of the technology to track and trace and then to do some of the positive uh, things that Sheila mentioned. Think back to the Venezuela example too of getting aid and resources into Venezuela. Uh, so it didn't get into the hands of Maduro or uh, didn't get into corrupt uh, you know, coffers uh, as a result. So, um, so I, I, think, I think we have to be kind of clear-eyed about the fact, look, there's gonna be risk in any new system. The question is, how do you mitigate that risk? How do you challenge it? And where it's most sort of egregious, let's say a nation state trying to take advantage, let's use the resources of the US government and the private sector to try to mitigate that risk and go after it. Um, you know, when I was at Treasury, our, our principal goal was, you know, make it harder, costlier and riskier for America's enemies to raise and move money around the world. Um, you know, the same principle can apply in the crypto domain as it does in the formal system, as it does with cash. Um, it doesn't mean you try to, you know, run away from the technology or, 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 or try to sort of regulate it out of existence. It means you have to then figure out what those gaps are and then address them. And I remembered what I was going to say. Which goes oh, yes. to, to, to what Juan just said, which is, uh, I want to stress that there are, of course, risks here, right? This is a technology that can be employed and misused um, by bad actors. And so when you go to the law enforcement officers and the frontline people at Treasury, and you ask them, so what is it that you need, right? What they'll tell you is they need more resources, of course, right? Because this is new technology that, that requires new recruiting and new tools. They need more resources, and they need things like... the you know, some of the biggest um, issues that they face is non-compliant rogue on-ramps and off-ramps, especially, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna be overseas in Asia and Eastern Europe that are the holes in the system, right? Through which money laundering can happen. And so figuring out ways to um, uh, target those and, and address those. Instead, what we see in when there are these proposals where concerns have been raised, and so here's a proposal, Proposal typically is to tighten the screws and tighten the regulations on the compliant exchanges who today um, are helping law enforcement officers do their job and who law enforcement officers have a great working relationship with and are already compliant, right? And so we're just gonna tighten the screws on them. Uh, and, and eventually you might do that to the point where um, you're not gonna, you're, you're gonna drive them out of business and you're gonna end up with no eyes and ears on um, the on-ramps and offerings. Yeah. It's just exactly right. I mean, I, the, the big, I think the big horrible here is that you wind up driving all of these compliant, not even just compliant, but like actually willing to, looking to help here, like very actively looking to engage in ways that further United States policy goals, right, around national security, like specifically wanting that. 
you're going to push them, either offshore them or shut them down. And then you're in a process where you do have to go get an M letter. You do have to kind of uh, recognize that you're going to be working with uh, folks who are not similarly motivated, potentially in other parts of the world or wherever they might be. And so I, I couldn't agree with, with my colleagues more here. You know, it's, it's, it's recognizing there are risks in the system, like within any system, what is the path to addressing the risks? Where do those risks actually live? And how do you go about addressing those versus whoever gets swept up in the net of the whole thing, we're just going to kind of crush who we can control at the moment, right? And that's just, it, it is having the opposite, I think it's counterproductive to what the ultimate policy goal is. And the policy goal, I think, is not regulate crypto. The policy goal is national security or you know, making sure our sanctions cannot be evaded or whatever. There are policy goals there that are fundamental. And crypto, there are places it can help and there are places it can hurt. But let's be very honest about what those are. And just, just a, yeah, Laura, I'm sorry. Just I want to put a, just a, a pin on this idea because it's really important because I think the lack of maturity in terms of understanding risk in the environment and to be able to differentiate has actually muted enforcement actions and other things that regulators should be doing to identify the bad actors, right? So, um, you know, the good actors are helped by when the scoff laws in the system or those that are concentrating the risk of illicit activity um, are allowed to continue to proliferate and to profit and to get bigger and to take more market share, right? So I, I'm actually a proponent of being more aggressive in the enforcement domain as a way of supporting what is the legitimate elements of that system and, and those that are trying to do the right thing by complying with regulation and working with authorities. So um, in the interest of time, I'm going to switch the subject uh, to a different type of national security. We are definitely seeing that China recognizes that this technology is going to be some part of the future. And so they have made um, pretty big steps to adopt the technology um, but in a very top-down way, uh, as is the Chinese government's way. Um, so, you know, they have issued this central bank digital currency, the digital yuan. They have like a lot of blockchain initiatives going that I think are, you know, to kind of help the government. And I know uh, some of the sources who have come on my show believe that they may try to kind of leverage the digital yuan and their Belt and Road Initiative to try to um, get other countries maybe to either at least transact in the digital yuan, if not, um, even hold it, um, and then maybe chip away a little bit at the US dollars uh, global reserve currency status. So I was kind of curious what your thoughts were in how the US um, could use something like a digital dollar, whether it's kind of a private stable coin or it's some public central bank digital currency or, or what have you, um, in you know what looks like to be this uh, chess game that China is playing with um, US dominance, frankly. Well, so for what it's worth, I mean, um, just briefly, for what it's worth, I'm a total China bear. Um, I think, um, you know, the digital yuan makes perfect sense in the context of if you want to control your population, it's a surveillance panopticon. Um, and so it makes a lot of sense there. As far as competing with the dollar, there's just no competition, right? The yuan, <laughs> dig, a digital yuan at the end of the day is a yuan. Nobody wants to hold yuan, right? So you look at global reserves and, and global trade, yuan makes up like you know, one, two, three percent at most um, of that. And there's a reason for that. Um, you know, they have capital control. They don't have, it doesn't trade freely, right? And, and so until that happens, and the Chinese government does not seem um, at all 
uh, open to doing that, it's just not going to be competition uh, for the dollar. And the Belt and Road Initiative is not going to be a way that they can kind of voice it on the rest of the world. Um, that said, um, so, so that's putting that aside, is there an opportunity here for a digital dollar? Um, you know, putting aside for a moment what the design of the dollar is, and I think that's very important, right? Because I think there'd be, there's a digital, there's a, uh, a, a design of a digital dollar that I would support, and there's a design of a digital dollar that I would oppose with all my being, right? Putting the design aside, you know, if I, if I was Congress, you know, uh, I, there's just an amazing opportunity here. Um, if what I was trying to do is to cement dollar dominance in the world, there's an incredible opportunity here to issue a digital dollar that is um, uh, bare, um, private, um, and open. And if you did that, um, you would dollarize the internet overnight, right? Because if you um, uh, are a merchant anywhere in the world, today you have to go through all kinds of different um, uh, uh, processors and different in intermediaries, and you might not even have access to the dollar. But overnight, you could have if you could have access to a tokenized dollar um, that you could transact with. Just about everything that's offered online would be begin to be denominated in dollars, and people would begin to transact internationally in dollars on the internet. Um, and I would imagine that people who want the dollar to be dominant would want that. Um, but you, you'd have to, you, you'd have to accept some risk, um, uh, 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 in order to do that. And that's what I think might be, um, kind of the holdup. And, and just briefly, just to put my, all my cards on the table, I think the easiest way to do that and probably the best way to do that is to lean on the private sector, right? We, we already have digital dollars. Um, so a lot, you know, basically let's, let's, um, pursue that private sector uh, strategy. Boy, okay. okay. I, I, Jerry's last point about what the digital dollar ideal design would look like. I also think it's extraordinarily unlikely that that's what we are going to get yeah. if we get anything, right? So I just want to kind of yeah. lay on that. Um, I couldn't agree more. I think that, you know, USDC and similar are, are the more likely outcome to achieve some of, but not all of, uh, you know, what, what Jerry's talking about at the end there. Uh, I disagree on, um, the China points uh, a bit. And so I, I think that part of what I, when I look at the world and I look at just the debt corridors uh, into China and where China's been investing, I mean, Zambia, we're the single biggest creditor to China. Uh, there've been multiple attempts by different countries, including India actually, to avoid a debt trap uh, with China, but are those going to be successful forever? I don't really know. It depends on what other kinds of investments going to flood into what country and what they need to be doing at what point in time. I don't think it's inconceivable that the use of digital yuan would be a predicate for receiving Chinese investment. And I think that there are countries that are going to accept that because they're not really going to have a choice. And so I do think that the explosion beyond Chinese borders of digital yuan from the ECNY until the next phase of it is something that is inevitable in many cases. We're already seeing some of this in Myanmar. We're seeing engagement there in what I would actually consider pilot sort of uh, model. But I don't think, Laura, I wouldn't call it a chess game. I think it's a pretty direct march here. I, I'm not saying <laughs> chess being played, but I think it's pretty, pretty blatant what the intention uh, is here going forward. Um, and again, I think you're talking about a massive, massive market with a huge diaspora community, with a tremendous amount of uh, power in the world financially that isn't necessarily recognized. Now, all that being said, 
I do think when, you know, if it does continue to move in this direction, if you do see a lot of African countries in particular uh, being held capture to this kind of model, if, if that does happen and Belt and Road and everything else, I think you get a lot of pushback, significant pushback from the EU, from the United States, from the global community to say, this is not the world that we want to be operating within. But I think this is being underestimated as a potential threat, uh, both to national security and also to just global stability in terms of the ability of the United States to the extent is our responsibility and you know opinions on this will vary to maintain basically um you know its stability basically around the world so so I, this is something that uh, that i uh I, you know again I, i'm not bearish on this i think that we have to keep very close attention pay very close attention to what's going on i think everybody in the world it frustrates me to no end how much we underestimate the african continent and what's happening both uh, pan-african but also in terms of the tremendous market opportunity and the tremendous potential that there is for crypto on the continent and which we're already seeing in many different countries senegal you know namibia uganda uh, zambia for that matter and of course kenya tanzania the usual suspects ghana nigeria um and so i just think that um it, it let me just let, let me hear the world is very big you know, the United States is not involved. We're not seen as positively as we like to imagine that we are in many parts of the world. China is not seen as negatively as we like to imagine that it is in many parts of the world as well. And so keep paying close attention, taking this very seriously is something that I think we, we need to continue to do. Okay, so I just um, unfortunately need to actually turn things back over to Jamil because we are kind of out of time unless, um, you know, I know we haven't heard from Juan, and I imagine Jerry might want to respond to that. But yeah, why don't, Jamil, why don't you weigh in? <laughs> well, I mean, look, Juan, Jerry, I mean, I, Laura, I leave it to you. Yeah, please jump in, uh, you know, give us your thoughts and, you know, keep it tight and then we'll wrap up. Okay, so Jerry, maybe do you want, did you want to respond or did you? Oh, you're muted. No, I don't think we need to get into a debate about, oh, okay. Um, okay. about that. And I then, think, you know, yeah, yeah. Okay, Juan, did you want to add anything? Yeah, just, just may, maybe to bridge uh, the, the the argument here. I think there there's this question of force adoption and how that plays in, or the attractiveness of Chinese investment to, to Sheila's point. So I, I think that's really important. I do think though that as, as awareness builds as to what a Chinese uh, CBDC entails, what it looks like and how that fits into the broader Chinese plans for use of data and integration of use of data, that creates enormous problems, I think, for the Chinese and broad sort of institutional market adoption. And so, um, you know, I think the Chinese have a trust deficit and that trust deficit is, is increasing, right? The, the lack of trust is increasing um, rather than going the other way. Um, now, they can circumvent or supersede that with lots of different incentives and other ways of doing it. But um, for, for money and currency to take hold in the marketplace, there has to be trust. Um, and I don't see that trust flourishing in the Chinese model. Okay, so Jamil, I think now, because uh, I, I know you wanted a few minutes to wrap up, but this was such an engaging discussion. I had so many more questions. You guys are fabulous. I could talk to you all day about these issues because it's so interesting, but um, I think we'll have to leave it there. 
Well, awesome. Well, uh, thanks, uh, Laura, for moderating this event. And uh, thanks to you, Sheila, Jerry, and Juan for being with us today. Um, this is one in a longer series of uh, events and, and online and in-person events that we're going to host around these issues of crypto and national security. And Laura, we'd love to have you and all of you, Sheila, Jerry, Juan, back again to talk about these issues again. Uh, love having the audience here. Uh, please take a look at our website, nationalsecurity.gmu.edu, and our SCIF. A blog where we have some amazing blog posts from some of our NSI's experts, uh, which include folks like Juan Zarate, who's on our advisory board. Um, don't forget to check us out on LinkedIn and Twitter and check out our awesome podcast, Fault Lines, Iron Butterfly, and NSI Live. And while we've got a number of events coming up between now and then, check us out on May 26th, where we'll be hosting former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to talk about his insights on how the United States can maintain its leadership in an ever evolving world. Thanks again, Laura, Sheila, Jerry, Juan. And thanks, y'all, for being here. Have a great evening, y'all.